Welcome to Pacific Rim College Radio, a podcast sharing stories and wisdom from experts in the fields of holistic wellness and sustainable living. I am your host, Todd Howard, coming to you from Ravenhill Herb Farm, a permaculture design campus of Pacific Rim College in Victoria, British Columbia. As the show's guests demonstrate, by doing small acts to embrace more mindful living, we can positively impact our communities. Steve James is recognized as a preeminent teacher of meditation and somatic practices with a global following. In this episode, I sit down with Steve to discuss the intricacies of his meditation practice, his teaching alongside colleague Michaela Boehm, and the journey that led him into this noble calling. Known as the Guru Viking, Steve grew up on the Shetland Islands north of Scotland and is no stranger to harsh environmental conditions. In fact, he seeks them out by exploring the limits of physical and psychological performance in extreme outdoor survival trainings and expeditions. Most recently, he completed an 11-day Arctic survival expedition in the Boreal Forest of Sweden at daytime temperatures of minus 24 degrees Celsius. Steve says fondly of the extreme conditions, the cold is very dependable. It is always the same. It doesn't change. In his formative years, Steve was influenced by the structure and ritual of martial arts. He also competed in fencing at the elite level, including on the Scottish fencing team in his teens. Also in his teens, Steve met and was later apprenticed to a Christian mystic from the Celtic tradition of Christianity, resulting in multiple years of close personal instruction in various forms of prayer, contemplation, writing, textual study, and service. Steve leads groundbreaking teacher training programs with Michaela Bowen. This includes comprehensive training in the area of intimacy and relationship, coaching skills, and the original nonlinear movement method. If you are interested in contemplative practices, you won't want to miss a breath of this episode. Steve, welcome to the show. It is so great to have you here, and I'm really excited to just dive right into what you have to teach us today. Thank you for having me. Now, before we go too far, I'm just curious where you are calling in from. I'm calling in from my boat in the UK. I live on a canal boat here in England. I used to love the idea of living on a boat. Now, I've heard a bit about the boat that you are living on. And I wonder if you can just explain it in a bit of detail for the listeners. Yeah, well, on the, in the uh, in Britain, before they had, you know, railways and things of that nature, the way that they transported goods around was largely through the canal system. And the canals are basically man-made rivers, in a way, uh, made by people. Actually, they dug them out. It's incredible, actually, to look it up the English canals, the British canals. And they go all around the country like kind of arteries. And in those days, the canal boats were these long but narrow river barge ships, I suppose boats, that used to be pulled by a pony along the side of the canal. So the canals have got something called the cut or the towpath. And the towpath is what it sounds like. It's where the pony would go or the horse would go. And then you, I don't know, fix the boat on somehow and then 
you know, would the pony or boat would drag the, the thing along and that's how things were transported. And people used to live on these things with their families plus all the cargo. And my boat, but now that, that doesn't happen as much, but uh, people live on them. So my boat is 59 foot long and six foot 10 wide. How tall is it? Long and narrow. Uh, how tall is it? Oh, I don't know. You don't have to stoop, do you? Oh, no. It's, okay. uh, it's not like a sailboat actually actually where things feel a bit more cramped it's basically like a long apartment a really long apartment with all the rooms in a row so at one end is the saloon as they call it which is this living room and then you have the galley which is the kitchen and then on the in the corridor off to the side is the bathroom and then the bedroom at the back and that's how it is do you move your boat around or are you stationary i do uh sometimes in the summer but i travel a lot so i i have a permanent mooring in a marina which also allows me to receive mail they have a p.o box here for me so i can receive mail from my bank and you know whatever it is pay my taxes and stuff and uh the boat just stays here and then when i'm home if if the weather's good in the summer yeah often i take it out for a couple of weeks you know so we just putter along and it's four or five miles an hour and Oh, it doesn't go very fast, but, uh, you know, so the problem is not getting somewhere. It's getting back again. <laughs> <laughs> well, I could probably talk about your longboat for quite some time, but I didn't actually invite you on the podcast to uh, dive deeply into that. The reason I wanted you on the show so much, Steve, is because you have a fascinating story and current mission in life. And I thought we would maybe start by uh, talking about what it is that you do and that you do so well. So if you could just give us a summary of your current work, and then I'm sure we're going to circle back around to it and cover it in quite some detail eventually. Well, uh, the things that I do, I suppose you could say it's the intersection between meditation, movement, intimacy and relationships, high performance, things like that. I think there's sort of intersection there. And practically what that means in practical terms is travel all around the world. Oh, very often with Michaela Bohem, my more or less full-time teaching uh, collaborator, who's a counselor and other things. We travel around offering workshops all around the world. We have private clients from all kinds of interesting walks of life. You know, we produce online courses and I have a podcast, the Guru Viking podcast. Where that's sort of my excuse to talk to people I think are interesting and cool. <laughs> so I get to interview all kind of people, you know, who are, have had a life in mainly the contemplative disciplines, including art, actually. Art, lots of meditation, translators, academics, things of that nature. That's what I do in the podcast. I'd say my, my passion personally these days is, is meditation. I really like that. But it's, that's only a really a fairly small part of what I actually do professionally. What do you teach alongside Michaela? And do you also teach privately and on your own? Yeah, sometimes I do teach uh, by myself. I mean, most of the time um, we work together, Michaela and I. You know, we we are, have quite a schedule. I think we do, last year, I think we did over 50-something workshops always going around some of them an evening thing some of them up to five days or six days in length 
Some of them are over an entire year with multiple meetings, things of that nature. It depends, you know. We teach uh, quite a bit to do with uh, intimacy, whether that's intimacy with the body, with yourself, intimacy with uh, other people in terms of your relationships. We teach relationship style workshops as well. And, we, you know, I teach meditation retreats myself. Uh, we teach movement stuff to do with trauma release, um, and things of that nature so we teach teacher trainings to teach people to teach the things that we teach we do study groups where people come back year after year after year and we you know we go through all kinds of interesting information there uh, men's groups women's groups uh, co-ed stuff the whole thing was there any sort of event or inspiration that led you down this path of meditation well actually i think I think some people are just a little bit wired that way. Um, and other people have some, an event or they have a certain kind of exposure to a certain inspiring, inspiring person, or maybe they have a difficult thing that happens to them and it sends them inwards. You know, very often a life crisis like a divorce or losing a parent at a young age and things like that. I often hear people cite these sorts of things as being uh, catalysts for an inner journey. Uh, for myself, Really, I think I've always been a little bit wired that way. And so from a young age, in my early exposure, early exposure to things of this sort, like contemplative style stuff, was um, in two ways mainly. The first being in my martial arts class that I attended when I was a boy. We attended karate classes there. And we'd always, it was quite a traditional kind of dojo. And they took it very seriously. And I loved it. You know, being f I was five years old when I began. And I totally loved it. I got it immediately. Standing, you know, punching and holding the punch, and holding the punch out for five or ten minutes, which when you're that age is a long time. You know, until your arms burn and building your spirit and all this sort of stuff. I totally, you know, bought it hook, line and sinker. And uh, really enjoyed it a lot. And uh, there we'd also meditate, actually. So we'd do it the end of very often, you know, we're doing some vigorous sparring or some, you know, kata, something like that. And then at the end, we'd stop quickly. He'd say, we'd drop right then and there, and often heaving and hoeing, huffing and puffing, and we'd meditate for 10 minutes or so. And uh, we did certain breath control exercises during that time. And we also would do um, just sitting and being still on the wooden floor, which is sort of working with pain and so on. It's, that's sort of stuff we used to do. And also, I was an altar boy actually, from around that same time period. Uh, so that in the Catholic Church, of course, you have the priest, which everyone knows about the priest, but then very often you have altar boys, uh, or altar, I think they have altar, altar girls now as well, um, but, and you put on a kind of cassock, big sort of dress thing, and you carry the candles around, it's prearranged, so you'll carry the cup to the priest, and, you know, he'll hand you the the, the the basin you take the basin over there and then you bring the candle and you put it over there and then you kneel with the big cross and then you stand up and you go over so this is a sort of choreographed thing you participate in this sort of ritual and the mass we used to go to was the early one in the morning i think it was 8 30 in the morning mass so i could go to my fencing afterwards i was doing fencing at the time as well so which was in, in sort of middle of middle of sunday so we go very early and in the early mass there was no singing so no hymns, no hippies with guitars singing and clapping and doing all that tambourines and stuff, just the raw ritual of it. And I really love that as well because it's just, well, like any ritual, it's repetitive and it's grand and it has this sort of possibility of 
going intimately within oneself at the same time as participating in this choreographed, uh, you know, contemplative ritual, which the mask can be. Are you still practicing martial arts today? No, no. What role did that play in your life? And, and when did that, when did that come to an end? Well, it, it played an enormous role. Uh, and that, at that time period, I think one is very open to influences and very open to, you know, blank, maybe not a blank canvas, but one's certainly very open, I think, and moldable at that age. So it really uh, did a lot. It made me very physical from a young age and gave me a lot of physical things to do, a way to channel aggression in an energy in a disciplined way. It also gave me an appreciation for precision. It gave me an appreciation for... Um, etiquette and things of that nature, which was emphasized in that school. Um, hard work, uh, delayed gratification, working with pain, etc., uh, etc. Et so it was very good. And of course, also, I read voraciously and practiced all the time. So I read so many books about martial arts, about you know, philosophy related to uh, initially Japanese, but then, which was the karate, but then also in other, other uh, places reading quite widely about martial arts traditions around the world, which then of course leads to certain contemplative or spiritual or philosophical systems, uh, which I would read about. And so that I think informed me a great deal also. Uh, and it's, it stopped because uh, as my fencing, Western fencing, I was on the Scottish team uh, in my teens for that briefly. And uh, that took over really from the more traditional martial arts aspect. I liked the idea in fencing of being able to actually compete really. You know, I liked that. And there was a sort of trajectory for me there where, which in the martial arts, the traditional martial arts, there wasn't that same outlet to really test myself against others in quite that way. It was a small, very disciplined kind of club, tremendous instruction, but there wasn't that opportunity to really, fight you know <laughs> i wanted to fight so with the fencing you get to stab people it's fantastic you know and is there also a ritual to the fencing or a, does it have a deep tradition pardon my ignorance but i know next to nothing about fencing um yes it does have certain traditions but i think um, and there there is certain etiquette like a lot of sport actually has certain little rituals etiquettes and so on that go along with it. But modern fencing is, is, is very much a sport-based kind of thing. So it doesn't have quite the same ritual or you know, ornamentation you'd associate with, say, a traditional martial arts situation. Um, even something as stripped down and bare bones as karate, which is, I think, characteristically quite rugged and bare bones, uh, fencing is, is a bit more, uh, I'd say, sporty. But of course, with any uh, combat sport, there's always a certain kind of uh, there's always certain kinds of rules and regulations and and do's and don'ts about how you treat your opponent and how you proceed and so on and so forth. So there is always that uh, aspect of it. But yeah, of course, it has a great tradition, which is the tradition of you know stabbing people for real. <laughs> we, <laughs> we did an awful lot of that in Europe in the old days, but I think it's been a very long time since we've needed to do that with swords. I am curious about some of your backcountry survival work you do you've done quite a bit of that haven't you a fair bit yeah why do you do it and what is it that you what you do well 
of course, I grew up on the Shetland Islands, which is a small set of islands very far north of Scotland. And so I was used to being outside and out and about. But one of the things that Shetland doesn't have much of at all is trees. It really doesn't have very many trees at all. And there's a legend as to why that is. Uh, and the legend, and I don't think this is true, but <laughs> this is what we were always told in school. We were told that the king of Denmark, who owned Norway at that time, see, right already, it's, I, I don't know the hist historicity of it, but it's, you know, this is what we were told. And it was given to Scotland as part of a wedding dowry. The Shetland Islands were given to, Shet uh, to Scotland as part of a wedding dowry. And the sort of, the Shetland people don't consider themselves Scottish. They don't really like the Scottish very much as a culture. Um, for instance, when we had to vote for independence from England, when Scotland voted to be independent, uh, whether they were going to be independent from England, which is something that happened, like kind of like what happens in Quebec, I guess. Did you guys have a vote in Quebec at some point? Or you just I, want one? I think they always have votes. But, yeah. Uh, I'm it's like not a exactly referendum. Sure of the history of, yes. Yeah. It's another yeah, it's a, thing. Right. So Scotland will occasionally um, do that. And Shetland almost unanimously voted to stay in, in the UK, in Britain. They don't like the English. Nobody in Scotland likes the English, but they like the Scottish even less. So they'd rather stay in the UK just in a certain sense, I think, despite the Scots. It's very funny. So they kind of consider themselves Vikings in a way. And I think that's, you know, could be fairly accurate. But anyway, so your question was about outdoor stuff. So, yeah, I mean, this, most of the stuff I've done, other than casual things, most of the interesting stuff I've done has been, have been on survival courses, actually. So I've done all kinds of survival courses. We did, um, you know, lots and lots, but one, one of the interesting ones, we did seven days where we, where we didn't eat. Part of the course was not to eat so that you understand, first of all, that you don't need to eat for quite a long time before you die. I mean, it's not very nice, but you don't have to. And you know, we went to this, it was an advanced course, and we showed up with all our you know, gear. They told us to pack all of our gear, so we put our backpacks on. And they lined us up, there was four of us at the beginning. And then they said, put your backpacks down. There's ex-military guys doing it. Put your backpacks down, so we put our backpacks down. And they just took the backpacks and put them in the car of the course leader. <laughs> And said, okay, because one of the things in survival that you probably, as you know yourself, I'm sure, is that you should have on your person what you need to basically survive. You shouldn't have it all in your backpack because what happens if you lose your backpack? Then you're screwed, right? So they, we, you know, we were supposed to know that. So luckily we knew that. So it was okay. They took it away and we thought, oh, okay. And they took us out there and for seven days in the Northern English winter, we, braved the elements and, you know, tried not to die and stuff. It's great. And, you know, we've done things like that or Arctic survival course we did, which is uh, 11 days, 10, 11 days, I think, in uh, North Sweden, I think it was, yeah, North Sweden in the Arctic Circle. No tents. That was really fun. What have been some of the most extreme circumstances you've endured? That was pretty extreme. Yeah, it's pretty cold up there. Uh, that was February in the Arctic circle in in northern sweden so that gets pretty cold up there and but actually uh one of the things that's very interesting about that is the cold of course when i first got off the bus at the site it was so cold that i actually had a fear response a little bit in my body like a kind of a panic a subtle panicky feeling 
because I didn't really know how to survive in that kind of cold. I mean, I knew how to survive in other sorts of situations, but I mean, one of the things actually that you learn on when you go out and do, go out into the wilderness and do things is you learn, especially if you're educated about it, is you learn what your body needs to survive. You learn how much water you need and how long you can go without it. You learn how to prioritize whether you should be doing shelter or setting a deer, you know, setting a rabbit snare or something like this, which is generally a bit of a waste of time, things like that. So a lot of people don't know what to do first. So they're paralyzed by indecision and they don't know how to rank the, the importance of the action. So I didn't know really how to rank the importance of the action. I didn't know how long it would take me to, for things to go wrong and that kind of goal. So all this sort of thing. But then when I later learned, they said to us, you're either going within two or three days, you're either going to love this, this uh, climate setting or you're going to hate it. And that was true. People, some people really hated it. Lots of, you know, several people left and uh, quite quickly. But yeah, it was, I loved it though, because the cold is very dependable. It's always the same. It doesn't change. It's just always, as you know, being a Canadian person, and I think you and the Russians are, you, I think you basically own cold, don't you? No one is, <laughs> whenever I talk to a Canadian about that, this experience, I always get the same response. They always, they always say, well, it's not as cold as, you know, <laughs> as Canada, you know, the, and it's true. You guys have got a very cold up there. We are but quite spoiled changed. on Vancouver. We're quite spoiled here on Vancouver Island. We rarely get below freezing. So where I am. Oh, I mean. yeah. That's great, yeah. Anyway, so uh, yeah, it was, it was cool. I like it because the cold is the same. And also when it's that cold, it's not wet because everything's frozen. So it's not wet or horrible and miserable. It's just really cold all the time. So when you get the hang of what you're supposed to do in the cold, it's actually quite, quite pleasant. Stressful, but enjoyable. What do you take out of the experience? What keeps you doing these things? Well, it's it's fun, isn't it? <laughs> Guess Going it depends out, on who you ask. <laughs> yeah, it's it's fun. I mean, it's beautiful. Going outside is beautiful. I think you know the thing that stops people from doing it. Pro I would say is probably things like you know discomfort, fear of discomfort, or not knowing what to do. I mean, that's understandable. Not knowing what to do, it's it's sort of well, you can't just go off camping or something in the woods if you don't know what to do, and that is quite stressful actually. I can understand that. But if you know roughly what to do, and you're you know know enough to be safe and know enough to, to what to do if something goes wrong, and you and you can go out in a place like that, it's something beautiful about it. The great thing is, you always should do the next task so if you're there's always one next thing to do so you've got to gather firewood now you've got to process the firewood now you've got to there's just one step after the other so it totally simplifies your life you just simply have to haul your um, body through the series of tasks which is an enormous rest for the mind it's physically uh, can be physically somewhat taxing, but that's invigorating too. And it's it's a rest for the mind. All the different decisions, all the conceptual stuff we have to do on a regular basis in the modern world. Um, when you go out in a place like that, it's very relaxing to the mind, and you're in nature, and it's so beautiful. And there are moments where your mind just quiets, your body is just you know restful, and it's you just suddenly see where you are. It's beautiful trees. Uh, you know, beautiful snow, <laughs> whatever it is. It's lovely. It forces you into a state of, of deep presence and mindfulness. Is that safe to say? I don't know if it forces you into it. It, it would certainly the opportunity. be, um, well, it certainly, uh, if we're talking about presence and mindfulness, it certainly 
it's just a different opportunity, I think, for those things. You know, it's a different sort of opportunity. Uh, it's very possible, I think, to go through experiences like that and just resist everything and kind of hate it and be miserable about it and just fight with yourself through the entire thing. It's very easy to do that. And you know, you, you go through that. You go through kind of a feeling of alienation from the surroundings to a feeling of oneness with everything, you know, one and oneness with nature. And then, and then something goes wrong and suddenly you feel like the trees are out to get you, you know, and then a moment later, you know, it's like you're, you feel like you're in some, in some ancestral state, just like a caveman, you know, one with the, one with the deer and all this. So yeah, I mean, it definitely has a unique, but that's why everyone goes out to nature. I think people like to go walking, don't they? Hiking, cycling in nature. Uh, why does everyone knows it's a wonderful rest? It's 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 restorative, it's beautiful, and uh, it's you know it's something about it that's just so deeply nourishing. Hmm. Let's talk a bit about your your current passion, work, and meditation. What does that look like for you? Meditation certainly comes in so many different forms and shapes and sizes what does your meditative practice look like yeah meditation you're right it's a word that means many different things in different contexts and people often will have debates and battles about which view is the correct one or which view is the best one or the highest one and so on and i like the diversity of uh, techniques and perspectives in meditation I don't find it to be a problem that there are many often contradictory or apparently contradictory perspectives on meditation. You know, it's all about acquiring enlightenment. Oh no, it's not. It's all about realizing the enlightenment you already have or uncovering, or it's about, uh, what do they call it? Oh, what's the word again? Cultivation. Yeah. It's all about cultivating this, that, the other. No, no, it's not about that. It's about dropping uh, the imp impediments to realizing this, that, the other. So I really like all the different stuff, all the different styles and, and so on. So my personal practice, oh, it depends. You know, recently I did a solar retreat and I went sort of quite to a basic technique. And for the six weeks of the retreat, my technique was, other than my sort of, I do certain personal practices each day. But other than that, my main working technique was uh, focusing on the sensations of the breath at the nostrils which is classic kind of focus on breathing technique. It's like meditation 101, right? And I decided to do that. And it was really fantastic because there's many elaborate kind of meditations you can do from different traditions, really fascinating and rich. But something that's nice about a simple technique like that is you don't have to choose what to do. First of all, when you sit down to meditate, you don't have to choose what your technique is. And secondly, um, if you're, the job is to, is to have contact with the sensations of the breath of the nostrils. And if you're doing absolutely anything else, than that, then you've got to come back to that. So it's a really, it's like a very simple algorithm. Some meditations are a bit more complicated. If you have to be doing body scanning, let's say, or loving kindness meditation, generating goodwill for people and so on. There's a lot more component parts to it, generally speaking, whereas focusing on the breath is a very simple algorithm. So that I found to be very, very interesting and nice, the simple kind of foundational practice. Did I hear you correctly that you did that for six weeks? Yeah, yeah. Did you do anything else for six weeks? Or yeah, was that yeah, I mean, um, it was over the summer. I have a bit of a break over the summer and generally from teaching because people are on school holidays and uh, go on vacation with their family and that sort of thing. So we don't teach so much in the middle of the year. And so I come back to the boat from wherever we were and I 
depending on how much work I do, I do different sort of schedules. So for that six weeks, the minimum I was doing other than my kind of personal practice was four hours of this breath practice each day, which is not, not as much as a, she would say, one of those sort of formal retreats you might do if you go off to a group when you're getting up at 5.30 in the morning and meditating all the way till 9 or 10, you know, you could be doing 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 hours a day of meditation in at some group retreats. But I had some other work to do. I had calls to do. I had, uh, you know, or, or still had to do work basically. So I upped it to four hours during that uh, time. And what does that work do for you? What does it bring to you? Meditation, inject, you mean... Yeah, when you're when you're doing a meditative a, a deep meditative practice like that for such a, a lengthy period of time, well, what's uh, what do you what are you feeling in your body? What dividends is it paying for you? Interestingly, uh, the the reason I meditate, as I mentioned earlier, is I think I'm a little bit wired for these sorts of things. I just really I'm just interested in it for all kinds of reasons. But it seems that I always come back to it somehow or another, and. I, I, the thing that I'm interested in about, about it is it's just, it's like a direct sampling of life. It's in the way that, I mean, you can do lots of different activities and you can learn lots of things and do all sorts of things. But fundamentally, all of those doings and relationships are occurring through the senses, through the sense gates, through perception, through awareness or attention. You know, whether you're reading a book or playing guitar or making a meal or whatever is the case, the one thing you're always doing is sensing things with your, with your apparatus of, of perception, you know, your eyes and your ears and stuff and your mind. And so working with meditation is, uh, it's kind of a way of watching the, the Netflix of your life. You get to sit down in front of Netflix and but Netflix is not Netflix. It's like actually life. And it's totally wild to me that we're alive or I'm alive it's totally wild that I'm alive and I can look out my eyes and experience things. And I'm a kind of point of occurrence in all this stuff that's happening. I look out the window and there's a bird on the pontoon or a duck swimming by or a swan or something like that, or a Canada goose from your neck of the woods come over here. And it's just so wild. They're alive out there doing their Canada goose thing, you know? And I just find that whole thing so amazing. And so meditation, I suppose the biggest dividend really is to the appreciation and enjoyment of being alive. And do you notice a negative impact when you're not doing a, a regular meditation schedule? Um, I, it's been a while since, quite some time since I haven't had a regular practice. But I can say that when I increase my practice, like if I'm doing my, my sort of solo semi-retreat that I was mentioning before, I noticed things, yeah. Um, but some, you know, but funnily enough, four hours a day of meditation is not a massively functional amount of meditation. One is not, one, it does, I think, it can impede one's function a bit, especially with a technique like concentrating on the breath, which is a very absorb, absorptive sort of technique. One become, can, can become a little less, one, one's structures of personality become a little softer. And in that, that, that's a sort of intermediary step, which can make one a little bit neither, you know, not the old thing or not the new thing yet, somewhere in between. So uh, 
it can have negative impacts, I think, in terms of your ability to do. And it's, also being in seclusion for six weeks is also makes, you know, you get a little bit weird. Uh, but then that tends to wear off when you so, come out again. <laughs> why, why is it then that you do that? Because it's awesome. <laughs> it's so fun. It's so fun to go deep like that. The human um, apparatus of the body and the mind is incredible. It's incredible. And I mean, it's just incredible. And so when you sit there and immerse in that, it's just the most stunning and rich exploration. It's just, it's just incredible. And then everything you experience is just so much uh, more vivid and clear and soaked in love everything you know the center falls apart everything seems like it's alive and it's just so tremendous so yeah it's the same you know it's just it's the mundaneness of it all is an absolute marvel to me mundane experience not necessarily high states of meditation but just mundane sensory experience is to me quite remarkable can you share any sort of experience a visceral experience or or any any sort of deep experience that you've had in a meditative practice before is there anything come to mind yeah i mean there's so many that happen one of the things i think that one can learn in meditation is that there are many states of consciousness available and that often i think we cycle through them in the day we go into sort of different moments but often we're not really aware of it or paying attention to the sorts of states that we're in and i think the one another benefit of meditation if you know you're talking about dividends and benefits is a gradually a comfortability with the range of of conscious states so the surface level i called it mundane or the surface level kind of consciousness is as okay as deep states of absorption or bliss you know know, states of bliss or states of relaxation or something like that learning in a certain sense to be comfortable and even prospering in all those sorts of different states without wishing when you're in a surface state that you were in a deep state for instance is there a particular look to your meditative practice? Are you seated, cross-legged, standing, walking, or, or does it, uh, is it very diverse for your practice? In terms of strictly meditation, I generally do it seated. Yeah, generally. Um, when it comes to formal practice, and formal practice I define as when you're doing, the, you know, the main thing you're doing is meditation. Okay. And of course, you know, traditionally you can lie down, you can sit, you can stand, you can walk. And in fact, actually you can do a lot of things. You can meditate doing pretty much anything. But when, I, when it comes to formal practice, um, which is when you say, okay, for the next 10 minutes or whatever, you know, half an hour, hour or whatever, I'm going to meditate. You just do that. Um, you know, I usually do that sitting. And then in informal practice where you're, you know, working with the technique uh, kind of in the background or kind of on and off or, a little bit of micro hits of techniques here and there that of course can be done doing anything. Yeah. But generally if you were to, if you were to, if I was to say to you, okay, Todd, I'm going to go meditate now. You'd probably see me go somewhere and then sit down Mm. (laughs) on the cushion or something. 
how do you teach someone to to do the meditation that you do and, and to bring it into their lives in a way that it's going to be nourishing? How do, well, okay. So, well, it depends. I was going to, first thing I was going to say is it depends on what we're teaching, okay. how it looks, right? But if we're talking about meditation, then, well, if we're on a meditation, if I'm teaching meditation day or meditation weekend or something like that, which sometimes we, I do that. And I like to do one where we do meditation, movement, and nature. So we do medita- most of its meditation retreat and a little bit of movement just to limber up the body for all that sitting and standing. And then we also do hikes and stuff in nature. And it's very nice. But uh, so in that kind of a situation, generally, of course, there's a range of people who will come. Some of them are more experienced than others. So I'll have some program that I've put together of techniques, uh, maybe a, a presentation or two about meditation. But I like to emphasize the practicing part, uh, really. So I'll perhaps introduce a technique through perhaps a guided meditation, something like that. And then for a great deal of the, of the day, it'll be practicing without me talking over it all the time. Because I think that actually, you know, meditation in, in a way, as the, one of the jobs of a meditation uh, teacher, one of them anyway, is to introduce people to their sensory experience, um, to introduce them to the possibility of meditation. You can't meditate for them, really. So, so that introduction is uh, just giving someone a technique, really. And then you give them a technique and, we practice it for a few hours, whether it's you know focusing on the breath, like we said before, or focusing on the sensations of the body, or working with the visual field in a certain kind of a way. And so I like to emphasize that part, because the general approach, I'd say, is inquiry over imposition. Trying to facilitate inquiry, investigation, stoke a kind of curiosity in the participant, so that they begin to... Uh, catch a certain sort of enthusiasm and interest and that will carry them you know so like i said you can't meditate for somebody so i like to do that and and giving people an opportunity to actually practice i think sometimes people are afraid to let participants practice i feel like you should be shouldn't we be doing something you know shouldn't shouldn't i be doing something <laughs> what if they they can't just sit there all day well actually on a meditation retreat you can and it's the it's the best thing you can do it's the most interesting thing you could do actually and it's, it's because they're doing meditation and very often people at the end of a, a retreat with me or something they'll say my god you know i didn't think i would be able to sit that much i didn't think i'd be able to meditate that much but i could i could do it and it kind of blows their mind you know they go wow i don't believe i could do it i didn't believe i could do it and they do so they've had an experience then of quite deep practice, which is tremendous. I'm curious how you became a teacher of meditation. Uh, well, like I said, meditation is a part of what I do. Um, and, you know, it's one of my favorite parts, <laughs> for sure. But it's a part of what I do. Um, I, I, I got into that really the same way I got into most things. is just get so interested in stuff, find out about it. Do it, do it a lot. And then people ask you, you know, they say, can you tell me about meditation as well? You get into it, you know, and you talk about it and then people say, please show me something about meditation. And that's how it goes generally. So it's, I think the reason I got into it is just my enthusiasm. I, I don't really have much of a career plan. I never really have had any kind of a career plan. It's just been following my interest. Personally, seems to unfold into all sorts of unusual opportunities that I never would have expected to happen. 
and focusing on serving the context, doing, offering something that's useful or valuable for people in whatever field it might be. Did you have any meditation teachers personally? Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, of course I've done, you know, many, many meditation retreats. Um, one of my main uh, meditation teachers is a guy called Shinzen Young, who people may be familiar with, and, but I've had other teachers as well. And I've done t- trainings. I've done teacher trainings of, uh, for instance, but, but that's not, but I mean, most of those I did actually when I was already teaching, but uh, th- those sorts of things, uh, they're not really career moves particularly. I don't think they would be the causal factor in me teaching at all. You know, I've done trainings and stuff, but they're not really the, the real driving force I think is enthusiasm, personal practice and passion for me. Um, and, and the enjoyment of interacting with people about a subject that I am enthusiastic about. I'd say that's mm-hmm. what it comes down to. Yeah. So that's I tend to attract people who are quite self-starters in that regard, who are already very interested in, in meditation, let's say, or, or actually also people who've never meditated before, but are attracted to the enthusiasm and relatability of the way I approach the subject. I'm not particularly bound up by systems or by views especially one particular view, like one religious view or uh, you know, something like that. Uh, it's more open approach, uh, which is characteristic actually of all the good teachers that I've ever had. They haven't, even if they're very educated and very entrenched in a lineage or a system, there's fundamentally an openness about them um, and a broadness in their ability to engage with people, which I think characterizes at least the aspiration I have in the way I work. Earlier, you mentioned your teaching partner, Michaela Bohm. How did you two come about working mm-hmm. together? And if you can talk a bit about the work that you do. Yeah, well, Michaela Bohm is a very well-regarded counselor. Um, and she has been uh, doing one-on-one counseling, I think over 40,000 one-on-one client hours, She's been doing that for, I think, 25 years, something like that. She's incredibly knowledgeable and experienced in the area of counseling. She's an Austrian woman, but she lives in California, in Ojai, California. So a lot of people know that. She has many very famous clients, actually. And so often people will know about her because of some of her famous clients that have talked about her in the press or something like that, or, you know, who some or interviewed her, or fe- you know, featured her for their things, and actors and rock stars and CEOs and things like that. And I also have clients like that. So we had a client like that in common. So that's how we initially met. And the sorts of work that we do, uh, uh, well, quite a bit in that area, the area of uh, counseling and relationships, workshops, uh, intimacy workshops, you could say, but that's, you know, could, that's a word that can mean many different things. So that's why I like to use the word, actually, because intimacy, in a way, it's like uh, feeling the sensations that are there to be felt, is sort of my definition of intimacy that I use. And so intimacy with the body is feeling the sensations of the body, getting to know your body and your emotions, let's say, maybe your, how your mind works. So that involves meditation, it involves movement. It involves all sorts of stuff like that. Um, but also intimacy with another person it includes all the skills of relationship, like communication skills and so on. Also includes skills of uh, how to create spark with you know, somebody and how to re- retain a spark with your partner and blah, blah, blah. Um, so it's a, we 
teach across all that, that range of things. Like I mentioned before, we also teach a certain movement style that Michaela developed called nonlinear movement method, which I contributed to in its later stages. And that's, that does a lot of stuff to, around trauma release and also embodiment in general, connecting with pleasure, connecting with this sort of thing. We teach, you know, we do all kind of stuff. So we have quite a ra wide range of uh, backgrounds. You know, she also had a classical tantric education uh, at the, in her teens with, with uh, Shakta Shaivism, or sometimes it's called Kashmir Shaivism. She had a, a teacher who was an Indian woman living in Austria at the time, and she was not a professional teacher. She was a housewife, but she had a householder's lineage of Shakti Shaiva uh, Tantra. And they, she, she uh, is now the lineage holder of that, actually. So she was with her for quite some years, I think 10, 12 years. And then uh, maybe four years ago, her teacher was passing away and called her and get, you know, sort of said, okay, you're, here's the potato, here's the hot potato, you know, you've got to keep this thing going and, you know, pass on the lineage, right? So we do, we do actually work around there. I don't have a lineage of, of like that, but um, a lot of our work or some of our work anyways, to do with, part of our work is to do with bringing that out as well, which is quite distinct actually from the relational work, which is more from a counseling kind of a, I suppose, counseling, uh, meditational kind of background. For someone like me who has, I have trouble doing seated meditation. I get uncomfortable. I can't, mm -hmm. I just can't even, from the very beginning, I can't find a position that works for me. What could you suggest if it is seated meditation? What sort of techniques or, or positions could I try? And if it's not seated meditation, what else could I do instead of? Well, there are actually my first DVD, Movement Crime Method One, has a whole section on that, uh, which talk, goes through various different seating positions and is also sort of lecture, mini lecture with follow along kind of lecture about the different seating positions and what to consider when you're attempting to get into a position. But really, uh, Patanjali, in the, in the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, for instance, which is a meditational text um, from medieval India. The, the, which doesn't necessarily make it any more authoritative than anything else, but it's just by way of reference. Uh, it says in terms of your meditation seat uh, position should be stable and comfortable. Siddham and Sukham, so stable and comfortable. So generally you want to be upright, if you're assuming you're sitting, and you want to be relaxed. Too relaxed and you collapse. Too upright and you, you know, too tense, too rigid and it's too stiff. So some people sit cross-legged in various positions on the cushion, which are somewhat difficult to describe in purely the audio version. Other people kneel. You can get these cool little meditation benches that they're about, I don't know, seven or eight inches high, and they, the, legs, the legs fold out. It looks like a tiny little, little table, like a pixie's table or something. And you, and you sit on that. It's like the weight of your body then is in the bench. They call them Cesar bench, Cesar bench, S-E-I-Z-A. And you can kneel and it takes the weight out of your knees and ankles. People find that very comfortable because the, the hips are neutral in a neutral position, not opened up in the way that cross-legged postures can do. Uh, of course, elevating the hips slightly above the knees, or maybe a lot, is also a very good thing to help position the spine in a more way that it can, be, it can retain its verticality without so much strain. 
So if you're sitting completely flat on the floor with crossed legs, it's kind of the hardest thing. Try putting a bunch of cushions underneath you to come up. And if that doesn't work, you can kneel on the bench or you can sit in a chair. If you can sit on the edge of a chair and just have your, you know, spine upright, it's really good. Or if you can't have your spine upright because you've got pain or injuries, you can just sit back in the chair or you can lay on a bed or you can stand in place or you can go for a walk. You know, the, there are some traditions that place a great deal of importance on the posture for various different kinds of reasons. There are, in fact, some traditions where the posture is the practice, actually. Um, but then there are other traditions where that's much, much, it's much looser. But generally, the rule of thumb in any tradition is, or any approach is to do what you can do because you can't do what you can't do. <laughs> so you just do whatever you can do. And generally, if you do it regularly, like each day, sitting for maybe three or four or five minutes, uh, gradually your body will open up and acclimatize to the position. If you're trying to sit for 45 minutes or an hour every day from a standing start, yeah, of course, your body is not going to take the stillness well and will not take, take generally speaking, won't take to the positions well. It doesn't matter what position you're in, trying to sit still in a chair for, for an hour and you'll feel stiff. But as you get more and more used to it, and you don't strain into pain. In the initial stages, you shouldn't strain into pain. If you feel pain, you should move. The body gradually opens. Later in your practice, you might choose to sit for long periods of time and maybe even sit with a certain degree of, of discomfort in the body. But that shouldn't be a discomfort that is you unable to get into or hold the position. It's the discomfort that comes from just not having moved for a period of time. With your student having found a comfortable position, what then do you instruct? Well, this is when things get interesting. You know, you could really go many different ways. So I'd be interested, I'd probably, if we were one-on-one, I'd ask you what you're interested in, in terms of meditation. Um, it depends on the context. If, if, if you came to me and said, Steve, I'd like to learn meditation, or I'd like to, you, you to show me some things about meditation, which would be a better way of saying, I think, how I like to think of what I'm doing. Show me some things. I'm like a, I'm like a pusher for meditation. So I... <clears throat> I probably, depending on who you were, uh, give you sorts of different techniques. One of the things I actually like to do is is to just have people sit along with me. That's quite fun. So if you know a social situation or uh, you know kind of living situation, if someone would like to practice with me, they just do what I do. One of the first techniques I might show somebody is to feel the sensations of the body. Feel the sensations that reveal the presence of the body. And when you do that, you might notice your bottom on the cushion, your hands in your lap, your clothing on your skin. And actually there are two things happening there. On the one hand, there's the raw sensory data flowing in, revealing the presence of the body. And on the other hand, the mind is labeling, categorizing, and parsing apart that flow of sensory data and saying, that's my bottom on the cushion. Those are my hands in my lap. That's the clothing on my skin. And so then I may, I may say to someone, so even as the mind labels and categorizes, you don't have to stop it from doing that. See if you can tune in to the raw sensory data before it becomes bottom on cushion, hand in lap, or clothing on skin. So that would be an introductory technique that I like to do uh, for all it's got all kinds of reasons why I prefer that it's one of my favorites and I think teaching one of your favorite techniques to somebody 
uh, is great because first of all, I've done a lot of that. So there's all kinds of little subconscious and unconscious communication that happens when you're being shown someone something by someone who, who knows about it a lot or has done it a lot. Uh, but also my enthusiasm and comfort with the technique, <clears throat> I think, comes across. And, and also uh, a lot of people, you know, want to feel their body, get in touch with their body in the head, on the computer, working so hard, lots of stress, worrying about things. And so to relax and let the attention settle on the body or soak into the sensations of the body like water soaking into a sponge. It's a very nice way of doing it. But there's many starting places. That's one. You mentioned earlier your personal retreat of monitoring the sensation of just breathing through your nose. I'm curious what other breathing techniques can be applied to meditation or, as I presume, is it limitless? I think, it, as you say, it's limitless, really. Um, I, in that particular retreat, I wasn't controlling my breath in any way. And I think that breath control, or as it's sometimes called pranayama, ought to be uh, performed on the foundation of free breathing. So that would be inquiring into the possibility. The instruction set would be something like inquiring into the possibility of the breath being nothing more than your body's response to its need for oxygen. Inquiring into the possibility of your breath being nothing more than your body's response to its need for oxygen. In other words, letting the body dictate the rate, the rhythm, and the depth of the breath, rather than imposing a rate, a rhythm, a depth, or a symmetry on the breath from the mind. And letting go of ideas for the time being, such as a deep breath is a spiritual breath, and just breathing. And I think one of the consequences of meditation in an ideal, you know, when it goes well, is a kind of relaxing of the alienation between inside and outside, between subject and object, and between mind and body. And very often, the first thing when people think, oh, I have to breathe deep, because that makes me, you know, deep. <laughs> like breathing deep makes you deep or something like that. I've got to breathe deep because it makes me more present or something like this. This is a common thing I think that's said. And I don't think it's uh, true, um, but it sounds nice, but I don't think it's true. And so fundamentally, when uh, what, what can often happen is people can often have a deep distrust of their body and their breathing, especially if they've been doing lots and lots of breathing exercises. They think that the way they want to naturally breathe is somehow wrong, you know, somehow sinful or something. And that really what you need is some technique to put in place on your breath to some to optimize it or to produce certain effects you know and certainly breath practices do have that effect you know if you do breath practices they have certain consequences but i think the foundation of any breath practice ought to be um svaramukta or free breathing intimacy with the breath without you know fucking with it <laughs> and then you can go on to you know fiddle with it all you'd like Meditation is now, of course, part of your life's work, but I'm curious what some of your previous passions were. Well, I mentioned when I was a little boy, I wanted to be a Catholic priest or um, maybe a martial artist, <laughs> one of those two. And then I wanted to be in the army, you know, and then I wanted to do this and that. What I ended up doing was... Uh, uh, 
another big passion of mine has been music, of course. So I was a professional guitarist for a number of years, session guitarist, which is a little bit like a freelance guitarist. So if you win Canadian Idol or whatever is the case, and you have to go out on tour or you want to record an album, you need people who play instruments to do that with you. And you hire them to do that. So sort of freelancer. So I did a lot of that sort of thing, pop tours and musicals and albums and film scores and things out of London. Uh, that was a great uh, passion of mine also. I think as a through line through all of these explorations, Bruce, Bruce Lee, who was a childhood hero of mine, along with other childhood heroes like Arnold Schwarzenegger, <laughs> Bruce Lee uh, said um, that all knowledge is self-knowledge. And I think it's true that all of these different activities that one can engage in fundamentally it's a lot of it's to do with you know it's always you doing it isn't it so it's always this exploration of the different facets of being alive and different facets of reality and different facets of life and so on so uh, to me it's it feels really more or less like one whole long journey not like a series of different explorations can you tell me a bit about your interest in the Tibetan language? Oh, yeah. Well, I, I'm always investigating stuff. I love reading books about all kinds of things. And yeah, Tibetan language, as you mentioned, is something that I've um, made an attempt at <laughs> penetrate. And why the Tibetan language? Well, because I'm interested in um, the uh, a, few, well, a few reasons, three reasons. Number one, I like the sound of it and I like the way it looks. I think it's a very beautiful language, um, both written and spoken. It appeals to me on an aesthetic level. Uh, number two, it's uh, learning a language is tremendous because when you learn a different language, you learn a, a different way of looking at the world and different way of structuring language and structuring concepts. So it allows you to see things from a different point of view, um, which is independent, I think, or, or which is not like being within a culture exactly, but just different grammar where you put the verb has an actual impact in, in the way you uh, perceive things, I think, or the way, you know, the way uh, concepts are, are given emphasis or weight. And the third reason is that I'm interested in the culture and the uh, body of knowledge that is in the Tibetan canon. Readers may be aware, but Buddhism, which started in India, migrated uh, to many different places, went into China, of course, and went eventually to Japan and Southeast Asia and different places like that. And one of the places it eventually went was to Tibet. And rather than the, the migration of Buddhism into China, for instance, was a very kind of uh, patchy sort of migration, just people going into China and spreading Buddhism and not really a sort of in a, an unorganized way. But in Tibet, it was a state-sponsored transference of Buddhism to Tibet where they basically oriented their whole society around it eventually. They sent people over there to study with the Indian pundits at the great universities and to learn and to translate everything. And they brought Indian pundits back and translated it. So they, they translated an enormous amount of, of what was then the Indian, um, at the high, at the high point of, of Buddhism in India from a sort of late stage kind of point of view, all the vehicles there, etc. The, the yanas and so on. Uh, a lot of that was moved over in, in, in two main movements to Tibet. And so when India uh, was invaded and uh, by the Muslim invaders and so on, and a lot of their 
great universities were destroyed and their libraries destroyed, a great deal of that was survived in Tibet, actually. So Tibet has an extremely comprehensive, well, comprehensive, right? a great reservoir of, uh, of literary, uh, you know, uh, literature, or from religious, medical, uh, philosophical, meditation, you know, blah, 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 you name it. They've got lots of stuff there. And despite the uh, Cultural Revolution, which did, uh, of course, sweep through Tibet uh, due, due to the Chinese invasion and much, many monasteries were destroyed and many of their texts were lost, still a large portion of them um, have, have been preserved and saved. So there's a whole incredible tradition of literature there which I'm interested in. And I think when one is interested in anything uh, of that type, whether you're, you know, if you want to be a New Testament scholar, you have to learn Greek, certainly. And, you know, if you want, and uh, that's definitely one of the things you've got to learn, you know, probably you have to get, you know, get a bit of Latin and different things like that, and Aramaic maybe. So it's just, it's just natural when you're interested in a subject that you, you begin to delve into the, the source languages. You've always led a very physically active life, being very athletic and have pursued many different types of sports. How now do you counterbalance the hours that you spend in seated meditation with your physical movements and pursuits? Well, I do not compete anymore athletically in anything. Um, so, but of course I've trained in things since I was five years old. So I've, I've done many different things. So these days, I would say from a fitness, physical fitness point of view. I mean, I have this way of moving called Movement Cohen Method. I refer, refer to my DVD and I've got two DVD downloads available about that. And that's a way of moving the body, which nourishes the joints and also explores certain themes. So the koan is a, is a riddle that they use in Zen, uh, particularly in the Rinzai tradition. They'll give you some sort of a riddle uh, if you want, or a, it's a sort of case case law kind of thing, and you sit there and ponder its meaning, and uh, that's one of the ways that that's actually a meditation technique. If someone says to you, uh, "What what's the sound of one hand clapping?" or "Does a dog have Buddha nature?" or something like this, those are some of the classic ones that people may have heard of. And you sit there in your meditation and you ponder that, or the question, "Who am I? Who am I?" And you ponder that. So we um, movement koan are ways of movement riddles or ways of approaching the body and ways of approaching movement that open up fields of inquiry into various different themes. So I do that most days and it's very sort of nourishing for the body. And in terms of fitness, I will do some sort of strength training uh, two, three times a week, you know, something like that. What is the guru liking? All of the uh, stuff that I've talked about operates through that company. Um, so that's the, you know, the name of my company and my, if you want my website's called guruviking.com and the podcast is the guru Viking podcast and the name, well, it's a little bit tongue in cheek, actually. It's a little bit of this sort of British humor. The stuff that I do is not tongue in cheek. It's not spoof meditation instruction or something like this. It's not sarcastic movement. <laughs> it's not like that, but, um, so that's sincere. But the name Guru Viking, you know, of course, I come from, uh, grew up in the Shetland Islands. I have a big red beard. For the, you can't see that on the audio, but I have a big red beard. And um, I guess I live on a longboat, which 
which actually happened after uh, the, I named the company, but nonetheless, you know, so it's sort of Viking in a way. And I like to go outside and go do outdoorsy things, as you mentioned, it's sort of, so it sort of fits from that sort of point of view. And, um, you know, the guru thing, of course, it's to do with meditation, is to do with exploring experience and consciousness and all these wonderful things that we've been discussing. So this sort of comes together. But I'm not actually a guru in the traditional sense of, um, you know, having disciples or anything like that. And I'm not actually a Viking in the sense that I go, you know, along the English coast sacking monasteries and small hamlet like that. <laughs> so it's sort of a bit of a tongue-in-cheek name and um as well a bit of humor in there which is a big part of my personality a little bit of humor not taking things so seriously all the time i want to give a nod to one of our mutual friends luke gifford who introduced us and i was actually on my way to ojai for a retreat and texted him from the airport and he said oh my my friend steve james works out of there he said let me send you send him a, a text to see if he's around and sure enough within a, an hour or two of landing in the la area you had opened up uh, you and michaela had opened up your space for to welcome me in and a couple of the men who i was on the retreat with so i, I want to acknowledge Luke for setting that up. And I also want to thank you for your generosity and hospitality as, as alongside Michaela. Uh, we had a great evening. I think the electricity was out that night when we were there. So we got to sit out among the stars and drink some, some homemade tea and uh, have some great conversation. Yes. You visited us for an evening with some of your Airbnb mates that you were staying with. Yeah, that was nice. That was fun. Steve, I really admire you and the work that you were doing and I've had a great time having you on the show, and I thank you for joining me. I'm wondering if you have any final thoughts uh, to share with the audience before we sign off. Well, we've talked a lot about meditation today, and it is one of my great passions. And I would say about meditation that it's you don't have to be on some high mountain to meditate. You don't have to be wearing special robes or have... A special teacher or have a special be in a special position or even do anything particularly special at all the wonderful thing about meditation is it's always available you have every sensory experience so when you feel to stop now or at any point and just look around and look at the colors and the shape and the light that's a way of meditating or if you were to stop and listen what are the sounds you can hear the sound of the room Rooms have kind of sounds, or maybe you can hear birds or people in the apartment underneath you walking around. Or what about your feeling? Do you have an emotional experience? Can you feel your body, the clothing on your skin, for instance? Maybe there's painful bits of your body, maybe there's pleasurable bits. In a certain sense, meditation in that way is a savoring of or paying attention to and enjoying and appreciating the sensory experiences that are around there's much more to meditation there's many different approaches but that's one way i think that's extremely accessible meditation is something that you it's actually natural it's a natural thing natural engaging with life engaging with the mystery of being alive where can our listeners learn more about you and the work that you're currently doing uh, you can go to www.guruviking.com 
and that's my website or Instagram forward slash guru Viking or facebook.com forward slash guru Viking. <laughs> and, and I presume your person to person teachings right now are on hold with the current state of the globe. Is there any, any uh, work that people can do with you in the meantime? Yes. Uh, we're not doing workshops at the moment, obviously, because at the moment, at the time of this recording, uh, we are in the middle of the uh, pandemic. So uh, we're, no one's traveling and it's, the whole world's kind of in lockdown, not most of the world. Uh, well, there's, you know, we have online courses uh, that Michaela and I create. Uh, those can be found at MichaelaBohm.com. And uh, I'm still doing Skype calls and things of that nature. So if you're interested in any of the, the sort of topics, and of course, you know, you can contact me, email me, we can talk about that. And of course, you can still download the Movement Command Method DVDs or the DVD, they come as a DVD or a download. You can still get those for a quite reasonable price. And then you can do cool movement things. And there's meditation instruction in there, actually. And there's little lectures in there. There's that whole section about meditation postures and limbering up. That's in the first one. There's all kinds of cool stuff in the Movement Command downloads as well. Great. I'll be sure to put that and, and your website in the show notes. Once the world does resume allowing us to travel and, and meet again, what workshop or workshops that you do, would you recommend a, a beginner, let's say, to meditation, maybe signing up for or checking out? Well, I would go on the site, peruse them. There's, they're very different. There's many different ones. You can do a five-day, you know, living in a farmhouse in the countryside where we meditate into the, in, you know, until like three or four in the morning and then, and do like movement practices and intimacy practices and all, you know, you can do something like that full, you know, full Kool-Aid, go full Kool-Aid <laughs> or you could just come to an evening thing or a weekend thing. I mean, there's so many different things we do. So I think the best thing would be to look at the menu and see what catches your fancy and what is in your country or your continent. Uh, yeah. And when we finally get out of this, uh, this whole pandemic, then yeah, it'd be great. I'll be, I'll be uh, looking forward to teaching and seeing some people actually. <laughs> <You know. laughs> sure. <laughs> Thank you very much for inviting me on the podcast. Thank you, Steve. It's been a pleasure having you here and I look forward to connecting further and good luck with all the work that you're doing. Thank you. You too. I hope you feel deeply grounded from this episode of Pacific Rim College Radio with Steve James. If you want to experience firsthand the teachings of Steve, please check out his website, guruviking.com. For a movement-based form of meditation known as Qigong, please check out pacificrimcollege.online under the bodywork and movement category. For other studies and holistic wellness, please go to pacificrimcollege.com. For the first time ever, and only during the pandemic lockdown, all PRC campus courses during May and June 2020 will be available with our world-renowned instructors live and online, making them accessible to you from anywhere in the world. If you enjoyed this podcast, share it with your friends and family and give it a five-star rating on whatever podcast app you are using. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, sit and breathe.